could you please turn with me to uh, the book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you've got a smartphone, um, there is Wi-Fi, and you can get to the ESV, English Standard Version, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. As I said earlier, next week is going to be a a summary, a recap uh, of uh, Hebrews 1 and 2. seeing how Christ is the apostle of our faith, he is the high priest of our faith that we uh, confess. And uh, this morning, uh, we're seeing uh, the last five verses of Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. And in in Hebrews 1, he has set up, the author of Hebrews has set up the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, who he is, that he is. He is the creator of all things, that he is truly God. All things exist by his hand and for him. And then at the start of chapter 2, it applies it very directly. It applies that truth. We must listen to him and his message of the gospel. They started to to, to flesh some truths out. And the rest of chapter 2 is based around answers to the question, why did the Son of God, Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, why did the Son of God become a man? Why did God become a man? Why? And uh, we've seen five uh, reasons in the end of Hebrews chapter 2. We looked at two of them last week. The first is found in verse 10. It says, to bring us to glory as sons. And then in 11 to 13, of, of Hebrews 2, this, this immense, wonderful truth that says that in our sonship, as children of God, Jesus might be our older brother. I can't flesh that out too much, but what a great truth. Jesus is our older brother, and we applied that actually in one way from verse 12, it's that Jesus Christ is our worship leader. Um, it leads us in song. This morning we're going to see three more reasons uh, from Hebrews 2. Why did the Son of God become a man? Let's read together uh, the Word of God. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
we've seen and, and we hold at this church to uh, a, a truth that the gospel message is ultimately Jesus Christ. The good news is a person, Jesus Christ. The Son of God came to earth, born as a man, lived a perfect life, died as an innocent man upon the cross, treated like a criminal, crushed under the weight of his Father's wrath. We'll see that here. In our place for our sins, he died, he was buried in a tomb on the third day, he rose from the grave, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is now exalted as the reigning king over his kingdom, which we do not yet fully see with our eyes, but will be here fully at his return. And so many of us ask this question, especially if you've grown up in kind of evangelical churches. Alright, cool, where's the practical, give me some practical living, you know, stuff. Give me something to do. We naturally just incline, give me something to do. I want to do something, I want to do something, come on. And Hebrew sets up a very important principle. Before he begins to talk about salvation and nuances, and especially also towards the end, how we now must live, he says, let me get the foundation right. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to understand who the source of the gospel is before you even think of how now we must live. Before applying aspects of salvation, he lays the foundation. Many of us want the house, we want the windows, we want the nice L-shaped leather couch in the lounge, but we don't care about the concrete at the foundation. And this is what this is doing. Holding a house upon a rock of truth. So, why did the Son of God become a man? We're told he did so in verse 16 to help the offspring of Abraham. We're going to look at that. Three ways, there are three ways he helps the offspring of Abraham. The first is in verse 14 and 15, which is conquer death and the devil. The second is to become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's in verse 17. And in verse 18, the third reason the Son of God became a man and helps the offspring of Abraham is he helps the tempted. Okay? So we're going to see those three things here. Helps the offspring of Abraham in Three ways. What an interesting statement, right? He helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 16, surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. There's been a lot of discussion on, on angels. If you haven't been with us here, we'll get to that next week. Um, this is a clear evidence of the incarnation. Jesus Christ contrary to so many whack-job cults, did not become an angel. He did not become some glowing, majestic, high creature. He became a man. This is evidence of the incarnation. He doesn't help angels. He helps the offspring of Abraham. And that tie to Abraham is, is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting choice of words. Uh, 
Cruz pointed out to me uh, this week, we were talking about the text, that he says, it doesn't say the offspring of Adam, a first parent, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It doesn't say the offspring of Adam, it says the offspring of Abraham. And the reason for this is that it is seeking to apply the fact that it is the children of the promise. Abraham was promised that through him, through his offspring, we're told, a blessing would go to the whole world. That's Genesis 12, 1-3. Jesus was like Abraham, Jewish. Abraham was the first Jew. Jesus was became a man. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He grew up with the Jewish customs and religion of the Old Covenant and all of its ceremonies. He kept the law perfectly, unlike anyone else had done. And we are told something interesting by Paul in Galatians 3, that through Abraham's offspring, the whole world would be blessed. But Paul tells us in Galatians 3, that it is offspring in the singular, one offspring. That offspring is Jesus Christ. Not ultimately all the Jews, but the one offspring. And so we are told that Christ is Abraham's offspring. And as we've seen over the past uh, chapter 2, the redeemed, the believers, have such a close union with Jesus Christ by faith, that he is called our older brother, that we are in union with him. And we're told we too become children of Abraham by faith in him, heirs of salvation according to God's promise. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Say that again. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The promise of Ab- to Abraham by God to bless the whole world through his offspring, that offspring is Christ. If we are in union with him by faith, we are Abraham's offspring. We belong to Christ. We are children of God. We receive the blessings of salvation. Not something we earn, but something freely given. It is the promise of God. There is no other way that we can have the saving relationship with Christ except by faith. We cannot earn it. We cannot keep God's law and therefore make ourselves right with Him because we fail every 30 seconds or more often. But Jesus is not like that. And therefore, this allows Him to help the offspring of Abraham. Let's see. Three ways in this text God helps the offspring of Abraham. How does he help the believers? Are you a Christian? You're confused by this language. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. You're in union with Christ. You are a part of the offspring of Abraham. Okay, so this is talking about you now. The first one, verse 14 and 15, is to conquer death and the devil. I don't like to, to repeat this too often, but these, these texts are so rich. 
Okay, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We're told that the, the children, the brothers, they share in flesh and blood with Christ. Jesus had a body, flesh and blood. This is making very explicit those Old Testament quotations in verse 12 and 13 of Christ is our brother. Identification between the brotherhood, between all those male and female who have union with the Savior. The redeemed and the Redeemer share flesh and blood. Marvelous mystery. A marvelous mystery. The incarnation, Christmas, was real. I'm going to give you some big words right now. This is important. Can you imagine a politician, for example? Say we're here, okay, let's, let's, let's do something that, that works for all of us. Can you imagine if the Prime Minister of New Zealand lived in Australia? Barely came, just didn't come here. Just lived, did everything by Skype. Can you, could you imagine that? Could you imagine the Prime Minister of our wonderful country and that awful big mess of sand over... Um, can, can you imagine if the Prime Minister just lived in Australia? Like, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be right, right? Fair enough? It, 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 you wouldn't vote for that person. I mean, maybe someone will try it one day, but it wouldn't work. Representation requires identification. You need to identify with the people you're representing. Make sense? You need to be like them. We wouldn't dare think of doing that. And as a result, it is very important that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. Now, this, these texts in Hebrews, Hebrews 1 and 2 and much of the book, they're incredibly polemical. They're arguments. They're correcting error. They're showing truth and they're correcting error. And these texts can correct a number of incorrect ideas about Jesus Christ. There was a group of people called the Arians. Okay? Arius. Um, and in the early church... Uh, they denied the full deity of Christ. They didn't believe that he was fully God. Chapter 1 shoots them down. Chapter 1 of Hebrews completely shoots them down. Okay? That's where the Jehovah's Witnesses came from, the Arians. So that's denied. But chapter 2 here, it's going against an ancient Gnostic heresy called Docetism. This is a cool word for lunch. Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, Docetism, from the Greek word docetai, to seem, which means to seem or to appear. And the Docetists believed that Jesus' flesh and blood were not truly human. That his suffering on the cross was not real. He just appeared to be in agony, but he, he wasn't like us, therefore he wasn't actually suffering. 
It just seemed like his body was real, but it wasn't. This is correcting that, and it's necessary. To give you an idea, there's a story from the early church. John, the Apostle John, who wrote John's Gospel and the Book of Revelation, he mentored someone called Polycap, who mentored someone called Irenaeus. Those are like some of the big figures in the first 200 years of the early church. Well, the story goes, Irenaeus tells, that John, the one who the Lord loved, was going down to the baths in downtown Ephesus. And he gets to the bath, and he finds out that there was a man called Serentius. And Serentius was a notorious heretic, and he believed that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. He was just a spiritual being. And when John found out that Serentius was going to be in the same building as him in these baths, he grabbed his clothes and ran and told people to run for their lives because he said that God might crush everyone inside and bring the building down on Serentius' head. He did not want to be in the same area as this heretic who denied that Jesus Christ was real. As we know, that is a, a, a true story. And the, the way this kind of belief comes to be is the idea that matter and, and physical things are bad and spiritual things are good. And therefore, if Jesus was fully God and fully man and he had a body and he had blood and he had to sleep and he had to eat, that's bad. He's not worthy of being a true Savior. In that understanding, salvation was freedom from your body. Becoming a spirit sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Spiritual harp. Um, Freedom from the body is what salvation is about. And many of us talk this way. It's it's, it's very easy to do that, that. The salvation does not include the body at all. Jesus doesn't give us freedom from the body. In his salvation, he recreates the body, makes us sinless, and gives us eternal life. The body is important, and Christ's incarnation shows that. And so this gives us the primary purpose of the incarnation, that Jesus might die and destroy death. Jesus Volunteered, the Son volunteered to become a man to die in our place and destroy death for our salvation. But there's an interesting phrase in there. It says that the, the one who has the power of death, who's, who's got the power of death apparently? The devil. Oh boy. If you watch Tom and Jerry cartoons, not exegeting a cartoon here, but you've watched any kind of cartoon at some point. On one shoulder, you got God, and one shoulder, you got the devil, and they're in a battle with each other. Have you seen that? Are you familiar? We all yeah, lost the nodding head. That's good. Okay? Is this text suggesting that death is not under God's control? Is this suggesting that the devil is one big God and 
that God of the Bible is the other God on the other side, and they're having this kind of dualistic battle against each other. They're two equal and ultimate realities fighting it out. Who's going to win? Is it saying that? Many people think of it that way. No. No. Let us remember, the devil is an angel, a fallen angel. He is part of the created order. And up until this point, Hebrews has made it very, very clear that all things are under subjection to God, and specifically in subjection to the Son, who created all things and all things exist for Him. The world was created good and without sin. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Good and without sin. Death. This might struggle with some of us. Death was God's judgment. God's curse upon sinners. Death entered into the human race in Genesis 3 as God's curse upon people for breaking His law. We're told that all fall short of the glory of God. We're told that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. The divine agent of judgment is God Himself. Death is not some part of creation, not some part of the universe that's outside of God's control. It's under His control. In what way does it say the devil has the power of death? I believe that this text is saying that those who transfer their allegiance from God and the life that he gives by choosing to be in rebellion to him and sinning against him, they seek to join a rebellion against God. They join the realm of death presided over by the evil one who is Satan. And each and every person who's ever lived, who's ever sinned, joins that side. Therefore, sin has entered into the world. In this sense, we can say that Satan holds the power of death because he likes it. He wants that for us. When humanity went from worshipping the Creator who's blessed forever to worshipping the creature themselves, committing idolatry, they went from life to death. But it is a temporary power that the devil has, we are told. First John 3 eight says, Whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil, but the devil has been sinning from the beginning The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why is there bad stuff? Why is there death? Because there is a natural human inclination away from God because we love sin more than God. We worship the wrong thing, that which does not give life. But one of the ways we see this power of the devil is only being temporary is because death is ultimately used against the devil. Okay? If you read through Revelation 20 and you get to verse 10 and you don't get hung up on the thousand year part, okay, you get to the devil who was deceived 
them were thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It says that death is ultimately used against the devil. The second death, that of hell. So he appears to have the power of death now, but because of Christ, the conquering high priest who brings people to God, he is himself thrown by God into hell at the end of the age. God's love is not separated from his law. Christ's death upon the cross shows the seriousness of sin. Jesus Christ entered, the innocent son entered into the death of sinners to satisfy divine judgment. And he was raised on the third day in vindication of his sacrifice. Jesus destroys death because he deals with sin, and sin is what leads us to death. Do we get that? Jesus deals with the sin, he pays for the sin that leads to death, and thereby destroys the power of the devil. And therefore, the gospel offer, the gospel offer is a call to receive Christ and receive the blessing of eternal life instead of the curse of eternal death. And he then delivers those who slaves to sin and death. That's great. Here's an implication of this. A Christian funeral. A Christian funeral. We should mourn, we should grieve because we miss the person and because they're gone. But a Christian funeral should ultimately have a significant, a significant amount of joy attached to it. Because our Savior crushed death. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting is sitting right there in the coffin. But it is a temporary sting. Because Christ rose from the grave, His people will have eternal life, glorified bodies, and they will be with Him. That's good news. too much content in Hebrews. You know that? It's too much. It's too much. Great. Wonderful. Let's keep going. The second reason why, the second reason how Christ helps the offspring of Abraham is that he becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. People argue that because Jesus was without sin, he wasn't truly human. And this text once again brings up that point that the corruption of sin is not ultimately part of humanity. That it is alien, that it is an intrusion that the true image bearers of God are without sin. Sin tarnishes our image, but Christ comes to restore us to God, and He is the perfect image of God.
Christ is like us in every respect. Sin is the alien intrusion. Jesus Christ did not need to be a sinner to identify with us in our weakness. And this whole thing, this whole section in chapter 2 has been driving towards the point which is fleshed out a lot more in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ came to earth, he died upon a cross in our place to become our high priest. So we're going to spend a lot of time, I've been doing a lot of reading on this. What does it mean that Christ is our priest? It's not surprising that this call for Christ to become our high priest here in verse 17 of, of, of Hebrews 2 comes after calling him the second Adam at the beginning. Adam was the priest, the representative between man and God in the Garden of Eden. And we're told that Christ is the second Adam. It makes sense then that the second Adam becomes the high priest, the representative before God of the people. That's the flow happening here in Hebrews 2. And we're told here the purpose of his priesthood is to make propitiation for the sins of the people that they may be brought to God. One of our elders, Vikas, his favorite word, propitiation, right? You like it? Yes, very much so. Okay? Propitiation. Here we go. Very unpopular word. To make propitiation for something is to stand in the place and take the punishment. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ is our propitiation in that he stands in our place and he takes upon himself the wrath of God for sin. He makes propitiation for us standing behind him. He takes the punishment. This is not the Father versus the Son. I want to make that very clear as well. This is not the Father versus the Son. This is not the Father's world. God is angry. Jesus is a sweetheart who stands in our place. God is angry. He just needs to be propitiated because he's mean. Jesus is so nice and he's just trying to calm his Father down. Calm down. Calm down. Not like that at all. God has one will, Father, Son, and Spirit. Together they decide to send the Son to satisfy the demands of holiness. God satisfies the demands of His own holiness by sending His Son, this Christ volunteered, He propitiated our sin in our place that we might be reconciled to God. And the amazing thing about a high priest making propitiation for the sins of the people, the amazing thing here is it says that Jesus died only for the sins of the people. That's new. That's unusual. If you go look in Leviticus how this works, you go read Leviticus 16 and 17, you go see how this all works together. The high priest, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, the first thing he does is he kills the beast for his own sins. Because he himself was a sinner. No mention of that with this high priest. Only then does he kill those sacrificial lamb on behalf of the people. And the reason for this is, is that Jesus is the sacrifice. This amazing thing, these multiple offices of Christ coming together. The priest 
who sacrifices, always sacrifices, sacrifices himself. The priest is the sacrifice. He does not need to offer a sacrifice on himself because he has no sin. He offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And we're told that this high priest is merciful. He's merciful. How do you know that he's mercy? How do you know that there's an offer of mercy? Because he died. And it says we're told that he is a faithful high priest. Wow. He's a faithful high priest. What this means is he never stops. Christ is high priest for us now. He is the means by which we go to God and our sins are forgiven. He never stops. High priests die all throughout the Old Testament. High priests are not good men at times. This one is sinless. He never stops. He keeps going. Therefore, he is able to make propitiation for our sins. There was never a moment when Jesus takes a bathroom break or goes to sleep and we are left without a representative at the right hand of the Father. Faithful all the time. And therefore, the last reason, the last way that he helps the children of Abraham is, we're told in verse 18, he helps the tempted. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered in many ways. He went into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. You can read about uh, that in the early part of the Gospels. In Luke 22, uh, round about verse 38, he tells that he tells his disciples that they have been with him in many of his trials. Jesus was tempted. Jesus went through trials. Jesus struggled. And therefore, he is able to help those who attempted. Jesus was exposed to sin. Jesus was exposed to the temptation to worship that which is not God. Jesus was told and heard all the lies of temptation. You know that sin has this habit of speaking? This will be better for you than what you got. Jesus heard and felt all of those things. Now some people will say that Jesus, because he didn't sin, wasn't really tempted. They say, well, he never did sin. How can we say that Jesus identifies with us in our struggles and our temptations if he never sinned himself? Well, Westcott, old, old biblical commentator, says this, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend depend upon the experience of sin, but of the experience of the strength of the temptation of sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls into sin yields before the last strain. Do we see that? He's saying, when we give in to temptation and we sin, we're not experiencing the fullness of the agony of that temptation because we just give in. 
Only someone that always says no to temptation can truly be said to know how hard it is to resist. What does it mean that Jesus identifies with us in our temptation? It does mean Jesus knows how you feel. He knows your struggle to do what is right. He knows those words in the ears. Slandering that person will be good. Covetousness within our heart. He knows that lie, that pornography, or that affair, or that relationship will complete it. He knows that. And he does something about it. Our help is not sinner to sinner. The church is a bunch of sinners who have found Christ helping each other in their temptations, bearing one another's burdens. The help that Jesus gives is not sinner to sinner, it's redeemer to sinner, redeemer to redeemed. His help is an answer to the cry of the psalmist. Psalm 79 verse 9, listen to the agony of this person. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. That's what the gospel is. God saving us from our sins, covering them, helping us for the sake of his own name. Here's our conclusion. So simple, I didn't think of this. Cruz told me, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Help for the tempted. Pray the Lord's Prayer. This is like an application here. We need to know these truths about God conquering death and the devil. We need to, to, to know and understand these truths, truths about Christ being our merciful and faithful high priest. And then this aspect of us, Christ helping the tempted, we need to lean into that. And praying the Lord's Prayer, and praying around the Lord's Prayer, is a real means of accepting one of these blessings and benefits of salvation. Listen to these words. Maybe you can pray along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Doesn't regularly saying that, maybe each morning, really lead into that dependence upon God which makes His name great? This is great. Through suffering, Jesus brings people into His kingdom with everlasting life. He deals with our sins, pays for them, and brings us to God as Father. And He helps us in our temptation. Doesn't that help us? Here's my last application here. Doesn't that help us trust Christ? 
if he faced every range of suffering and temptation and then holds out to us nail-pierced hands saying, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because Christ suffered and was tempted, he knows how you feel. That should help us. It should help us 